go ahead and open up to the, the book of 1 Peter. It's towards the very end of the Bible. You've got 1 and 2 Peter, 1 and 2 3 John, Jude, and Revelation, and that's it. So at 1 Peter is where we're going to be studying through the summer months as we uh, uh, begin our, our journey, kind of going through the, this text that Peter has written. Um, it's to an area really up in northern Turkey, as we would call today. So over kind of in the area where Leah has been, over that direction of, of Eastern Europe uh, and North Asia area, Asia Minor. So um, it's an interesting couple letters that he writes. We are doing something different this, this summer. Some of you may already have a little scripture journal of First and Second Peter and Jude. We passed some of those out last week. We got more on order and they're a little bit of black book. On one side of the book there is the text, and on the other side of the page is just open notes. We don't have enough for everybody today, so your little first to know is uh, bulletin information has something that you can write on the back if you'd like to keep notes, and then as soon as you get one, hopefully by this next week, you can transfer those over. But it's something we'd like to do to encourage you to to take your study uh, in First in and Second Peter a little bit deeper this summer and, and allow it to go with you even beyond Sunday mornings, and then you can write other notes and have, uh, go through those Scripture passages as well. Several years ago, the Department of Health and Human Services, they sent a letter to a resident of Greenville County, South Carolina. The letter said this, Your food stamps will be stopped effective March because we received notice that you passed away. You may reapply if your circumstances change. Ah, ah, don't think unless his name is Eutychus, maybe. Uh, circumstances will, will change that much. But it did happen to somebody other than Eutychus that we saw in the kids' video. It happened about 2,000 years ago to a man by the name of Jesus who died and who came back to life. His resurrection had a profound impact on the world. Even today, we are still talking about what He did beyond the grave. His resurrection can change you and can change our world really forever. So if you have your Bibles, let's open up now to 1 Peter and we'll see where uh, Christ's resurrection begins to change as Peter begins to address the church. Let's look at the first couple of verses. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. The Apostle Peter, he's writing to a group of, of people who, who are Christians. They're in the churches there in, in this Asia Minor section. He, he lays them all out there in the areas, as he writes, uh, of Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia. Those are kind of like state regions. They weren't just cities. They were, they were states. So like he might be writing to those, the churches in Missouri and Illinois and Arkansas and Mississippi and Kentucky. You know, that region is what he's doing. So he's sending this out to them. And, and he's writing them because they are, he classifies them as exiles because of the dispersion. All right? They're, they're kind of scattered everywhere else around northern Turkey. The Greek word for this word dispersion, or some translations have the word scattered, 
It was used in Bible days of the Jews who were separated from their homeland because of captivity, and they were taken different places around the world. They were exiles, but yet they were foreigners, they were strangers, they were aliens in those lands because really they wanted to get back to Jerusalem. But Peter has changed that wording, no longer being indicating that it is the Jewish people who have been scattered, who have been dispersed, but it is the Christians who now have been scattered and dispersed around the world because of persecution, just like the Jews had had at one time. You see, the Roman government under Nero began to persecute the Christians with abandon. And the things that he did to them are really unspeakable. And so Jews or Christians had to flee from where they were living so they would not be captured and tortured and killed And so they left to areas that it appears that they might not be discovered that easily. And so even though they are gone and they're scattered out and they're dispersed, Peter wants them to know that there is hope for them yet. And there's hope for us too. Even when we feel like we're strangers in a world around us, Christ still offers us a hope, a living hope. So let's look what he says here in verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The resurrection gives us a living hope. We are born again to a living hope. We're born to be able to know that nothing's going to hold us back. There is something that that cannot diminish the hope that we have because it's found in Jesus Christ. And even in the midst of difficult times, that means it is a sure hope. It is a certain hope. It is not a wishful thing. It is a certainty. Often when you read the, the word hope in the Bible, it is not a wish like you're, you're hoping or you're wishing that something would take place, maybe. No, hope is a reality. It's a certainty. It is a fact that something is going to happen. And it is a living hope because it is based upon Jesus who no longer is found in the grave, succumbed to death, but He has resurrected and He is alive. That's what our hope is based on. It's based on Him and it's a life-changing hope. Three years ago on March 30th, 2018... George Weigel wrote uh, a, a, uh, an article in the Wall Street Journal. He talks about the profound impact that hope had for the ancient world. This is what he writes. He says, There is no accounting for the rise of Christianity without weighing the revolutionary effect on those nobodies of what they called the resurrection. They encountered one whom they embraced as the risen Lord, whom they first knew as the itinerant Jewish rabbi, Jesus of Nazareth, and who died an agonizing and shameful death on a Roman cross outside Jerusalem. Now listen what he says. That first generation answered the question of why they were Christians with straightforward answer. Because Jesus was raised from the dead. And as they work that out, they're thinking about a lot of things changed profoundly. So we got to understand what's going on. When they were asked, why are you a Christian? Their normal response was because Jesus rose from the dead. 
If I were to ask you that, that same question, why are you a Christian, would that be your first response? Or would you say, well, my family's always been Christians, and so we were raised in this church and we're part of this church? Or would you say, well, it's a good ability for me to make some connections in the business world because there's a lot of business people in the church? Or, or, or there are friends here that go there. Why are you a Christian? And the early church said, it's because Jesus rose from the dead. The article also goes on to mention some of the positive outcomes that are brought into the ancient world through Christianity. This is what Christianity did to the world at that time. First off, there was a new dignity given to women in contrast to the classical culture. Women were no longer second-class citizens, but the Christianity ushers them forward and allows them to be equal because there is, as Paul says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for we are all one in Christ. He says that there's also a self-denying health care provided to, to plague sufferers. When the plague hit back in the, in the mid-centuries, it was devastating. But it was the Christians who opened their homes and took care of them. Denying their own self so that they could benefit somebody who was suffering through the plague. There was a focus on family health and growth. There was this remarkable change in worship from the Sabbath to Sunday. That was a revolutionary thing, for, especially for the Jewish people who became Christians. There was also a willingness to embrace death as martyrs because they knew that death did not have the final word in the human story. Because of Christ, we can live again. And living as if they knew the outcome of history itself. Now, now Wegel suggests that it's only through what he calls the Easter effect that these changes make sense. The social changes that followed Good Friday occur only if they actually believed in the resurrection of Jesus. So, Peter wants to get across to us this understanding that we have had birthed in us a living hope, a hope that actually makes a real difference in our lives and in the world around us in which we live. So we need to live our lives with confidence. So you need to be sure. You need to be positive about what this is. Be certain of a glorious future no matter how bad things may get in life. Because we have hope. The resurrection of Christ is a sure and a certain fact of history. We can't deny it. His empty tomb and his post-resurrection appearances, together with two irrefutable pieces of evidence for the resurrection of Christ. The first one is this. If the disciples stole Jesus' body, as the Jewish leaders first declared that he did, that they, they somehow overcame the Roman soldiers and they got into the tomb and they stole his body away then there's no way to explain his appearances to hundreds of people over the next 40 days before he ascended into heaven. It's not just having one witness or two witnesses or three or even the 12, but there were at one setting over 500 people who saw with their own eyes Jesus alive after death. And a lot of these people who saw him, they refused to deny the resurrection, even if it meant 
their own death. On the other hand, if Jesus' followers were hallucinating when they claimed to have seen him, then, then all somebody had to do was to go to the tomb and show that Jesus' body was still there. But he wasn't. The only explanation for this piece of, of evidence is the fact that Jesus did indeed rise from the dead. And it's an irrefutable fact in history. Nobody has yet been able to prove anything different. I once heard that despite our efforts to keep him out, God intrudes. I mean, the life of Jesus is, is bracketed by two impossibilities, the virgin womb and the empty tomb. Both those things, you, you go, that, that's impossible. There's no way that anybody can be born of a virgin. And yet, he came into this world. And we say there's no way that anybody can be buried in death and by their own power again three days later rise. It's an impossible thing. Jesus entered our world through that door marked no entrance. And he left through the one that said no exit. That's powerful when we think about it. And Peter wants us to understand because of what he has done, we have this hope. You think about it. The same way people say there is no exit from the grave, yet Jesus came up out of it and he lives. Sometimes you may think there's no exit from your problems, but if Jesus found an exit from the death, and we're told by the Apostle Paul that he provides a way for us to escape when we feel overcome and, and burdened down, there's always a place that we can do. He always provides a way out of our problems. Bill Gaither put it this way, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future and life is worth a living just because he lives. So put your faith in Christ and be sure be certain of the glorious hope in the future that we have, no matter how bad things may get in this world. Specifically, be sure of your permanent possessions in heaven. Through faith in Christ, God has given us a new birth into this living hope. Look what it says in verse 4. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, it's kept in heaven for you. There are things that we have inherited in life from our dearly departed. And they may last for a little while, but eventually, you know, the things begin to, to weather and fade and, and they're just destroyed over time. Nothing in this world appears to last forever. But this inheritance, if you notice, he says, can never perish. It lasts forever. It, it never spoils, literally. It is pure and untainted. It, it can never fade, and its beauty will never diminish. It's always there because it's kept by God in heaven for us. But that's not the way it is with all our earthly possessions. They don't last. They get spoiled. Their beauty fades. But that'll never happen with your heavenly possessions. They will always eternally last because they are things of God. Now, more than that, be sure that you're secure 
of your salvation. We have to understand that God is going to protect us. Even in the battle against the enemy, He will protect us and our salvation is secured. And there's nobody that can take it away from us. That's yours to keep. Listen to what he says in verse 5. He says, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The word guarded is a military term. Matter of fact, it, it, what it means is it refers to a garrison of soldiers who are put in a place to design to, to, to safeguard a city to make sure that nobody can come in. And so it's using this word. Now think about it. Our inheritance, our salvation is guarded with a garrison to make sure that nothing and nobody can take it away from us. You see, when we put our trust in Christ, God puts up this protection for us. It's a stronghold of power within to protect our souls until the ultimate salvation is, is revealed in us. We know that we are saved because of what Christ has done, but we have not yet fully experienced that salvation until that moment that we cross from this life to the next. Nothing can get through that garrison to take away from God's love. Can anything? And the Apostle Paul tells us there's nothing. Not even principalities, not even evil, nothing can take us away from Him. It was up to you to keep your own salvation. At least if it was up to me to keep it, I know I'd probably lose it. I lose a lot of things. I can't tell you how many times I lose my phone. You know, good thing my wife will call it and we'll find out where it is, where I've set it down. But yeah, I'm just that kind of person. And so if if I were the only one in control of my salvation, I guarantee you, I'd have lost it years ago. But he's the one who guards and keeps it. Peter, this man who wrote these very words, understood his need for God's power to protect him. On the evening before Jesus' crucifixion, Peter was there with Jesus and he was proudly announcing his, his relationship with Christ, that he would do anything for him and he'd make sure that nobody would ever harm him, that he would, if he had to, he would fight and he would surrender his life and he would die for Jesus. And just a few hours later, where do we find him? Cowering around a little fire and a servant girl is saying, aren't you one of those guys that was with Jesus? No, I wasn't. No, aren't, you, aren't, you, aren't you one of his disciples? And three times then he denies even knowing Jesus or being with Jesus as a disciple. Where was that man who just hours ago had said, I'll fight for you, I'll even die for you, and now he sees himself speaking to a young girl that I don't even know you, and it even ends it with a curse, that there's no way he could be one of them. His own strength had failed him but not God's. Because after the resurrection of Jesus, we see Peter and Jesus walking along the Sea of Galilee. And we see that Christ is reaffirming his confidence in Peter and allowing him then to take care of his sheep. Preaching Today website had an article about Timothy Johnson. He's a minister of the Church of the Redeemed up in Bowie, Maryland. 
And in this article, they wrote about a time that he was getting ready to fly out of Baltimore, Washington. And, and, and as he was doing that at the airport, along with everybody else, he went to the TSA screening. And you know how they do that. They, they wand you and they do all those kinds of passes way. Well, his stuff got selected and they pulled him aside into an area. And, and he, they're going through his baggage and his luggage there and, and they're going over him. And the guy notices, Timothy notices, that this TSA agent has a ring with a cross on it, a silver ring. And he mentions something about it. And so the, the TSA agent then goes on, he says, he says, yeah, the ring, it, it means I'm a follower of Jesus. You know, on my job, one of the things that we worry about is dynamite. But you know where that word dynamite comes from, don't you? It comes from the Greek word dunamis, which signifies the power of God. So as a Christian, I know that all the power belongs to God, and that's why he sent Jesus. So while I'm doing my job, he says, I know that he is doing his job, and that's where I put all my trust. It belongs to him, and he's here with us. Well, Mr. Johnson, have a great trip. You see, that simple little thing, by recognizing a ring and the understanding that this man's not afraid of what might lie ahead in somebody's baggage or luggage, even if it's explosive, because he knows that the power of God is greater than even that. That's a security screener. He trusted the Christ to protect him, which made him a bold witness for Christ. We need to do the same. So we need to trust that the resurrected Jesus knows what's best to do with our lives. We need to depend on him who, who died for you and rose again for you, because in his resurrection, you too can be brought back to life. We need to call upon Him and ask Him to save us from our sins. And then like Peter and like Tim Johnson, and like many millions of people around the world, you'll be able to serve the Lord with confidence. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. So be sure of your glorious future, no matter how bad things can get in your life today. The second thing is this, you need to be glad, even during hard times. We're supposed to rejoice in times of pain, and we're supposed to celebrate even in times of grief. Listen to what it says there in verse 6. In this you rejoice, though, now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. We're supposed to rejoice in the fact that we have been grieved by various trials? And yet that's what he's saying. Because we have this living hope, you go back to the beginning of that. He has birthed in us this living hope because of Jesus. And so now we should be able to rejoice in the fact that even when we're going through these trials that are grievous to us, it's dependence upon Christ that you allow yourself to be transformed through your suffering. And when you're hope in the Lord, you can rejoice no matter what takes place. Jesus is risen. So we need to be glad even in the pain of life. Because in doing so, there is praise that is offered up to God. Listen to what he says in verse 7. So that the testing genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Why should we be so happy? 
Why should we be so glad? Because the testing of our faith, when we make it through that and we overcome through that, it results in the praise and the glory and the honor of Jesus Christ. We go through things not so that we are glorified, but that He is glorified in the fact that we have made it through those struggles no matter what comes our way. Trials, they come only to prove the genuineness of our faith. How real is our faith? How strong is your faith? In his book, Life Before Death, Ian Leach, who's a Scottish preacher, he talks about three luxury ocean liners, the Queen Mary, the Queen Elizabeth, and the QE2. And this is what he says. He says, when they built these ocean liners, they did not test them in dry dock. They didn't leave them in dry dock and get big hoses on them to see if they would leak. They got those ships out into the open ocean to put them through sea trials. These trials were not intended to sink the ship. These trials were intended to prove that the ship was seaworthy. And in the same way, God sends trials your way, not to sink you, but to prove that your faith is real. It gives a whole different perspective when we realize the struggles that we're going through on a daily basis, that that is a defining point of what our faith is and how strong we live that in Christ. It's not to destroy us, but it's to strengthen us and it's to prove that our faith is genuine and it's real. That's what happened to Andrew Brunson. Do you remember that name? Andrew Brunson, he was a prisoner for Christ over in Turkey in this area in which Peter is writing. Just a few years ago, matter of fact, Andrew Brunson had been a, a missionary for over 20 years in Turkey, trying to lead people to Jesus Christ. He and his wife had done that, and, and they had been attacked in multiple ways, having their house burned down, having different things stolen from them, having all kinds of stuff had taken place. But this really really got to the, to the heart of things here. He was captured by the Turkish government, put in prison, and held as a spy. Remember the story now? Along with a lot of others like journalists and, and, and other people that were there in Turkey, he was looking to spending about 35 years in a Turkish prison in which it was devastating to him. But eventually the United States government stepped in, and he was released. In Wheaton College, in a chapel discussion he made back on March 8th of 2019, Andrew Brunson just candidly talked about his experience. And he, one of the things he said is he did not feel God's overwhelming presence while he was in prison. Instead, he said he experienced something even deeper. Brunson said that after a few days in prison, I completely lost the sense of God's presence. God was silent, and he remained silent for two years. Here's a man who has been for over 20 years serving Christ in Turkey, trying to introduce these people to their own salvation found only in Jesus Christ. And now he's in prison, and, and he has been abandoned 
and for his own perspective, abandoned even by God. When he was finally brought to trial, things became even worse. Listen to what he says. He says, there are some who go into the valley of testing, and some do not make it out. That's powerful. There are some who go into the valley of testing, and some who do not make it out. I was broken. I lay there alone in my solitary cell. I had great fear, terrible grief, and I was weeping. And the thought kept going through my mind, where are you, God? Why are you so far away? And I opened my mouth as I wept aloud, and I was surprised at what I heard coming out of my mouth. I heard, I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. I thought, here is my victory. Even if you're silent, I love you. Even if you let my enemy harm me, I love you. That message is actually about 25 minutes long. I just took a few parts out of it. If you want to look at it, I would challenge you. My, it's a powerful, powerful message that he gives on how he's, he's really helping us understand what First Peter is all about and the persecution, the struggles, and the hardships, and sometimes how God is not there, but in the end result, you discover really he is. You can go and search online, uh, YouTube, and you can go to look for Andrew Brunson, Wheaton College, uh, the College Chapel, on March 8, 2019. There's a, a website here that you can, you can click on. It'll take you right there. If you want to write that down, go ahead and put that on the back of that paper because I'm telling you, it is a powerful, powerful message. Brent, Brunson's faith was real, and so he was able to withstand great trial, even though he thought he'd have been abandoned by God and his country. I once read this statement. A realist is an idealist who's gone through the fire and been purified. A skeptic is an idealist who's gone through the fire and been burned. See, we're both going to go through the fire. Trials are going to come, but it's how you examine those trials in your life that the result is different. I choose Christ. If your faith is anything else but Christ, you'll be burned by the trials. But if your faith is in Christ, those trials only come to purify your faith. So be glad even in times of pain and be glad because the praise that will come and be glad because the purpose of your faith has been realized. Rejoice because your trials are right now bringing you to the goal of your faith, which is your ultimate salvation in Christ. First Peter, again, let's look at this, verse 8 and 9. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And over in Hebrews chapter 1, chapter 11, verse 1. I get there. Now faith, listen what... 
the writer says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. He says, you don't see Jesus, but you love Him. We're extremely joyful. I mean, that's true faith. Because of that faith, we are right now in the possession of our salvation, which is the ultimate goal of all things. And nothing can take that away from us. Now, now the verb tense in verse 9, the word obtaining, it's in the present tense. It means that it is a continuous reality in the life of every believer. We're obtaining this. Again, what did he say? He said, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. It's an ongoing thing. You're, you're always in the process of obtaining the salvation of our faith. And it's complete deliverance of all sin. Now, I want you to think about the process of making maple syrup. I've got a, a gentleman who's on the board of Ability Ministry with me. He lives up in Michigan. And his family has a maple farm, and they make oh, delicious maple syrup. And every now and then he might bring one to our annual meeting in, in, in Knoxville, and, and the guys will get to sample some of that maple syrup. Now, I'm getting you, getting you ready warmed up here for something to eat, right? right? When you think about maple syrup, maple trees are tapped with buckets that are hung underneath the, 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 the spout that drips out this thin, clear, like water substance, the sap. All right? and, and, and they do this. Now, he says, on a good day, 50 trees can yield up to 30 or 40 gallons of sap. But it is essentially useless at this point because there's only a slight hint of the sweetness. All right? So if you just tap it and try to, no, that's not good. All right. As the buckets fill, they're emptied into large bins, large vats, and they sit over an open fire. And the sap comes to a slow boil, and as it boils, the water content evaporates and is reduced, and its sugars are left behind. All right? And they become more concentrated. It, it has a developed a rich flavor and a golden brown color as it goes through all this process. But it must be strained several times to remove impurities before it's being reheated again, bottled, and grated for quality. And in the end, those 30 to 40 gallons of sap are reduced to about one gallon of pure, delicious maple syrup. Which really is far better than the cheap imitation stuff that you get there, you know, you use on your pancakes. It is delicious. So, the same thing is true when it comes to our faith. We need to be refined. And we put our faith in Christ, and there's a little bit of the sweetness of Him in us. But it's as we go through those trials and the testings, and we are heated and refined, the impurities and stuff are taken out. And what is left is something that is wonderful, something that is marvelous. And so we rejoice and be glad, though we're going through the testing of our faith, the trials that come. We can rejoice because the grace of God that we have received makes us secure in our faith. Let's look at it we close out verses 10, 11, and 12. 
Now concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when they predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that they have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. In essence, these verses are saying, you have it better than the prophets had it. And we look at the prophets in the Old Testament, we see, man, they all went through hardships. They all went, none of them had a really good time in life. It was difficult, and yet they brought forth the Word of God, and they were proclaiming the mysteries of heaven, pointing to Jesus Christ, and they longed to see its fulfillment, but they didn't get to. And even the angels of heaven, they, it was a mystery to them. They were waiting to see all this fulfilled in Christ, and when is that going to happen? The prophets and the angels Desire to experience what you are experiencing right now, the grace and the goodness of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus is alive. His resurrection brings power and hope. Even when you may be going through the hardships and the struggles, doesn't matter because the outcome is praise and rejoicing in Him. Those times we don't need to look to the world, we look to our Lord because the world offers promises that are full of emptiness. But Jesus, our resurrected Lord, offers emptiness that is full of promise. An empty cross, an empty tomb, empty grave clothes, they all signify to us His promise is real. I pray that you put your faith and your hope in Jesus. As we begin to really dig into Peter this summer, I hope that it becomes a book, that actually the two letters become letters that you enjoy reading. That you find them, that they're especially important for us. Because First Peter is going to talk to us about the struggle that we have as Christians, the persecution because of Christ, and yet how we can overcome because of what He has done for us. Hang in there. Because His resurrection is real. And if it is real, so shall ours be.